Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Today on the show, we are going to be discussing the future of energy. Uh, which is a super exciting topic, and not that many people can discuss it very well, but the man on the line definitely can. His name is Mark Mills. He's co-author of the one of the most influential energy books of the last decade called The Bottomless Well. And he is CEO of the Digital Power Group, as well as an adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute. So without further ado, Mark Mills, welcome to Power Hour. Thanks for having me join. My pleasure. So let's start out by talking about your new report from the Manhattan Institute, uh, which is on the future potential of North American energy from coal, oil, and natural gas, and how that changes the world energy landscape. Happy to. So can you just summarize that report for us? Well, this is a, um, a report that I put together. It's a, actually a white paper, to be more, more precise, not to create expectations for a, a massive tome of endless pages of data that really summarizes a trend that is widely understood in the energy and the technology community. And very simply, that the United States now is enjoying a remarkable reversal in our production of hydrocarbons, specifically oil and gas, but also we have a similar uh, increase in the productivity of our our coal mines. And for most people, I think the assumption has been that the United States is a, uh, in North America in particular, are a, a province that doesn't have very much oil and, uh, and many hydrocarbons. What I've summarized is the fact that not only have we five times the total resources of hydrocarbons that are contained in the entire Middle East, but the fastest growth in new production of oil and gas in the world in the last three years has occurred in the United States. And it's occurred largely without incentives and help. And in fact, you could say largely in the face of very challenging political headwinds. We have reversed for the first time in 40 years, the continual decline in production of oil and gas in the United States. And we have doubled our exports of petroleum refined products. We're on track to becoming, if we want to, not just energy independent, but potentially the largest supplier of hydrocarbons and energy to the world economy. This would have dramatic impacts on the geopolitics of the world energy markets. It would have enormous beneficial impacts on our economy balance of trade or deficit, and it would generate millions of high-paying jobs in the U.S. economy. It's a phenomenal revolution that has been quietly brewing, and in my view, and as I put forward in my paper, it's time not just to let this happen by accident, but to forge a national policy to accelerate it. Uh, one thing that I really enjoyed about the paper was just the, the positive tone, which is justified by the facts. And, and one thing that's struck me about, for instance, the hydraulic fracturing revolution is that it's not something that people are super excited about, whereas it, it's just unbelievable in terms of what, if we know what cheap energy can do and we know what producing energy can do for the prosperity of a country, it, it's just one of the greatest developments of the last 10, 20, 30 years. And yet, we hear very little of the positive and almost exclusively the association is negative with fracking. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question. It's kind of a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting psychological question too, in terms of how words have impact. And we all know that. I mean, words, words are, uh, words are relevant. Uh, words have impact on people, how they think about things and how they react to things. And this is true in day-to-day interaction. It's true in policy. And it's why people spend so much time thinking about how to, how to title books and articles, why policymakers work so hard at creating artful acronyms, what things they do. It's, uh, it, words matter. And, you know, engineers are an odd lot. I, I say that having worked as one years ago, and uh, I don't work as one now. I'm not trained as one. I'm trained as a physicist, but I, I had to work as an engineer. Engineers are an interesting lot. They don't think so much about those kinds of things. They, they, uh, they think in, more in terms of, well, you know, Let's describe what, what it is and come up with a you know, short form that makes sense to them. So if, if this revolution in fracking had a different 
word. If it had been called uh, more precisely, uh, remotely uh, precision steerable drilling <laughs> or microseismically guided enhanced horizontal drilling with enhanced pressurized uh, uh, oil release. I mean, there's a lot of words you could use, but they wouldn't sound as easy to say as just fracking. Now, here's, here's what's really going on, what fracking really is. Fracking is two things bolted together. It, uh, hydraulic pressurizing of wells has been going on for about 40 or 50 years. This is not a new thing. Fracturing the, uh, uh, jarring the oil and gas-bearing rocks that are underground is something that oil drillers have been doing thousands, in fact, tens of thousands of times for a very long time. If this is not a new, that's not a new technology. What's new, however, is the ability to use information technology, advanced materials, and remotely controllable, precisely steered drilling instead of going straight up and down, but to drill horizontally, and not just drill horizontally, but to drill uh, in dynamic real-time using a real-time logging uh, involving neutron spectroscopy and chemical spectroscopy. It's very sophisticated stuff. It's all high-tech stuff. To drill a well that can follow uh, an oil or gas seam horizontally. Once you've drilled it, then you hydro hydraulically fracture the, uh, the shale to uh, enhance the release of gas or the oil. The combination of the two has been revolutionary. So it's been a combination of an older technology, which is pressurizing a well, and a very new technology, which is uh, microseismic imaging and remote uh, steerable drilling. The two together, we've chosen to call fracking, which sounds rather alarming. <laughs> it's become an invective. It's a very, it's a very interesting thing. So, but in any case, uh, it has resulted in this uh, gusher of oil and gas production in the United States, a shocking increase in production. And, and the interesting part is that this production has been uh, has resulted from small in, uh, businesses doing it. A lot of them, you know, ten and twenty employees, thousands of small businesses. Not Exxon and Mobil. I'm done this. Thing. This is not. This is not Sunoco and in uh, BP. This is these are these are the these are the literally thousands of the mom and pop size small businesses in, in the United States who on private and state lands, none of this is on federal lands, have received permits to allow them to drill and employ new technologies that they couldn't have begun to afford two decades ago. Now they're affordable. Uh, it's sort of a technology revolution that's been largely ignored and resulted in this, this incredible increase in production of oil and gas. It's an extraordinarily positive outcome, uh, and yet there is a, um, I guess, an unhappiness about it among some quarters because there was this uh, mythological belief that we were running out of oil and it was finished, and therefore we have to now switch to something else. You know, who knows what? But switch to something else, and now that we have technology unleashing lots of oil and gas, uh, those who don't like it for reasons that are inscrutable seem unhappy. Yeah, that's, I mean, one thing I really like about your work, and, and I'm using this to make a point, just not uh, not just to flatter you, is that you have a genuine enthusiasm for technology. And, and the reason I bring that up here is because I think that it can be hard for those who have a genuine enthusiasm for technology to really relate to those who have a, a general, general antipathy toward technology. And in that, in that respect, I think it's relevant to the issue of naming. And this, this came up with nuclear power uh, over the years because it was, I think it was initially called atomic power and people thought, oh, that's the word doesn't work uh, because people associate it with the atomic bomb, so let's just call it nuclear power and then all our troubles will disappear. And then, of course, nuclear acquired the same stigma. It was no longer just related to the nature of an atom or related to the nature of, say, nuclear medicine. It, it got its own stigma. And I think that, that points to the fact that whatever the engineers positively name it or don't name it, there is a movement to stigmatize anything that is new and unfamiliar as dangerous. And it takes a certain kind of framing and confidence and taking of the high ground of the the advocates of the new technology not to be not to have it um, something people are afraid of because in the absence of a, of a positive clear case for it people can just act like oh this is a new way to contaminate water as if anything about fracturing there's anything unique to its ability it's it's very low probability of contaminating water well that's, that's all true and 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 it's part of the debate over it's, it's a very old uh, debate a very old conflict between uh, abundance and and uh, people who are not 
not that happy with the effects of abundance because not everything's perfect. There are there are negatives to, to things. Although I'm I'm optimist about negatives because we've shown over history the negatives are also ameliorated by technology. So the solution to a lot of problems comes from technology handled intelligently. Of course, that's always the stipulation that we don't we're not we don't behave like idiots. And there are people who do that, and there are bad people in the world. But not that I'm naive. Being an optimist doesn't mean you're naive. And it's not that I'm an optimist about technology. I'm, I'm, I would actually choose, although people label it optimism, I would choose to label it differently. It's a realist because the history, the facts show that what has unleashed the technology or energy and what has unleashed productivity, what has made people's lives better in an environment where you can function, that is a free economy, is always technology. So as long as you have the predicate that there's a free economy, where people can do and pursue their their uh, business and life and their dreams within you know boundaries of of, of a rate of, of uh, legal stability, if you like, right, property rights and property ownership. All those things are important, but no one would say that the incredible change in the U.S. economy over the last 200 years occurred entirely because we have a free economy. If you had a free economy and no technology, it wouldn't matter. We'd still be we'd still all be on, on 40 acres and a mule. You need the free economy and stable regulatory environment, stable stable laws and rule of law, and then you have to have technology. And technology is what's created all the abundance, all the benefits, all the economic benefits, all the jobs. Productivity comes from technology. And the, the fact that we have more jobs overall, despite the recession, the last this, this hiccup we've got going on, courtesy of the Great Recession, but over longer time periods, technology generates more jobs. It will again. That doesn't mean that there aren't... Uh, People who have challenges doesn't mean there is an unemployment. None of those things ceased to exist because of technology, but they're all moderated and ameliorated. And in fact, the, the the long history of this makes us, it makes me extraordinarily confident that if we let, sort of what the point of my paper was, if we let businesses function, we won't have an energy problem of any kind. We have other problems, but we're not going to have an energy problem. We just... There's a lot of oil, gas, and coal in the United States and North America. Uh, one of the things you said just at the outset of the program that really interested me was the increased technology with regard to coal, because that's something that we hear very little about. Could you elaborate on that? Well, the productivity of coal mining has roughly doubled in the last 20 years, so it's, uh, which is not irrelevant. Right? It means that it's safer, faster, cheaper. And uh, everything associated with the coal industry has gotten better, cleaner, uh, and, and cheaper. So we have a resource base in North America that is countable in, uh, in uh, nearly a trillion barrels of oil equivalent, thousands, a thousand billion barrels of oil equivalent of resources in the form of coal, which has extraordinary utility for making cheap electricity, which is the fastest growing source of energy in the world, has been for a century and remains so. And uh, that means that the United States is sitting here in the Kepler Sea is the most reliable, largest single supplier of the single most important fuel in the world. It actually supersedes oil in terms of its importance from a growth perspective. But the two together are extraordinarily important. We have, we have lots of all three, oil, coal, and gas. But generally speaking, people are ignoring coal because it's, been, it's come under attack for all the reasons that, uh, that probably you'd have to be Rip Van Winkle and fallen asleep a century ago not to, to know why coal is not under attack. Uh, but it's uh, extraordinarily abundant hydrocarbon. It is an extraordinarily important hydrocarbon because it allows one to make one of the single most important forms of energy to deliver society in, a, in an inexpensive and reliable way, which is electricity. Now, if you look at uh, the forecasts or a history, you'll see the same trends. The growth in demand in the United States, the growth in demand in any state, the growth in demand in China, India, any, any country of the world for electricity runs at about twice the rate in the growth of demand for non-electric energy. If you think about it a little bit, you know why. It's easy to figure it out. But the fact is, those are, that is the fact. And it means that the single most challenging thing for most countries is not so much getting oil. Well, that, that is extraordinarily critical, too, for transportation. But it's getting electricity. In fact, given the choice, as you might imagine, if you went to a, a country where it had no oil for cars and no electricity for communications, air conditioning, and lighting, they take electricity first. I mean, if you just think about living in a world where you had neither, which do you need, which do you want first? Refrigeration, lighting, and communications, or wheels? Wheels are critical. They come second. 
Yeah, let's uh, let's go into that more because you, a lot of your work has focused on electrification. I find that very interesting because even in even in the scenario you just just described, of course, the reason that they can have an affordable refrigerator in the first place is a whole global trade system that's that's moved by oil. Um, and obviously, one doesn't need to choose one or the other. But do you see some of liquid fuels being either replaced by electrical generation in some way? or the coal and gas being converted to liquid fuels? Well, it's, I think there's going to be an increased fungibility of all the hydrocarbons going forward. That's what technology allows. You're going to see more natural gas being turned into liquids. You're going to see more coal turned into liquids. You may see gas turned, uh, coal turned into gas, which already happened in gasification facilities. Uh, oil, not so much, except the turn into products, but it's mainly main value is it's a liquid fuel. I, it's extraordinarily difficult to contemplate, imagine, or even forecast a liquid fuel that has the efficacy of, of diesel or gasoline. It's so much better than everything else that the primary goal in the long run with respect to transportation is not going to be the electrification of transportation, but the increased use of technology to produce synthetic oils or more oil. Oil is just that much better than everything else. Well, I'm curious, given how much you think into the future, is there any possibility of taking advantage of the energy density of nuclear power uh, for transportation purposes? I mean, we we already do it in subs. Granted, those are you know those are very big, but is there any way conceivable in the future to do that on a, on a smaller scale? I mean, I, I've just read random reports of. Here's a, a car powered by thorium that you know could have energy for 120 years. I have no idea if there's any legitimacy, but I'm curious about nuclear transportation. So the 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 only the only energy source that is that is really revolutionary after hydrocarbons is, is of course nuclear. It's, it is the it is the uh, the logical next step in, in primary energy after you go from uh, biological fuels into hydrocarbons. So carbohydrates. Which I include in terms of their energy efficiency, wind and solar, they function as sort of the same kind of energy efficiency of grains. That you go from grain kind of energy efficiency, gathering sunlight, to hydrocarbon energy efficiency to nuclear. So your your instincts are exactly right. Of course, the dawn of the nuclear age. If you read books from the 1950s, and I've kept some of these, not that I was around reading them then, but I'm just, I've got them. The the Excitement then was understandable. Like people thought about it, and you know, popular science has these you know now hilarious illustrations of nuclear-powered not just ships, but you know, airplanes and cars. And in fact, some nuclear-powered aircraft were built, uh, and nuclear-powered spacecraft. It's, it, it's the challenge in, in nuclear energy lies in finding new materials, almost new physics for shielding radiation. If such uh, a material were developed, then you would see a staggering revolution in transportation. The biggest problem with nuclear energy, from the viewpoint of using it on a small basis, is, is shielding it. So by small, then that's car-sized or truck-sized or airplane-sized. I don't see anything on the horizon. However, I think the nuclear industry is in a bit of a sort of stuck in a rut. Essentially, all nuclear plants are built at mega scale. It would be as if the only ships that exist in the world were supertankers. And nobody built any other size of ship for any other scale, for any other purpose. You got a super tanker, whether you carried oil or, or containers or people, it was all that size. That's essentially what we're doing in the nuclear industry. There is clearly an opportunity to build uh, nuclear plants at scale that is smaller and very significant in terms of rapid deployment all over the world uh, that would be inherently safe, phenomenally reliable, incredible high density, and radically better in terms of every metric you can imagine from an environmental impact perspective. I, I'm extraordinarily bullish about that, but I don't know, I don't see any evidence that it's being facilitated significantly by any anybody except the Chinese a little bit. Uh, but from a technology perspective, I would say that's, that's where we should look next for a revolution. It's not going to be in biofuels. It's going to be in uh, uh, what are so-called small modular reactors. Some people call them nuclear batteries. Small by standards of today's reactors, but really big enough to small to power uh, entire city blocks or uh, uh, small towns. 
I've heard that there are physics reasons why the optimal size for a nuclear reactor is considerably smaller than you know the current massive ones. Uh, do you have an opinion on that? Uh, well, so I'll, I'll step outside of my as a physicist. I'll step outside of my domain because I'm not a nuclear physicist. Uh, I, I think the physics reasons uh, argue for big reactors, and that's been the problem. So the the uh, the economies of scales and the and the in, and the physics of scale, thermodynamics of scale, really argue for big reactors. However, some some very clever new physics has emerged in terms of uh, engineering of physics with respect to the small molecule reactors, which are absolutely fascinating. In, one of the reasons you wouldn't want a big reactor from a physics perspective, I suppose, would be just uh, thermal inertia, the heat. If you you're dealing with a lot of heat in one place extraordinarily challenging, and if you had less heat, it's much easier to keep it safe and cool it. That, that's one argument, and it's a valid argument, but I don't, it's, not a, uh, it's not a gating argument. It's not a what argument? It's not a gating issue. It's not a, it's not a determinant issue. It's not what would be, there's really nothing in the physics that says you, a big reactor is not good. Let, let me give you an example of a big reactor. It's called the sun. <laughs> yeah, well, that has a little bit more advanced technology than we, than we have. Well, it's pretty brute force technology, I can tell you that. It just crushes everything. Well, if only we could do it. The, 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 but the, uh, the, my point was to your question about the physics. The physics don't suggest that there's a reason you wouldn't want big. Uh, engineering is a different matter, and it's been easier to engineer um, uh, a big. And it's been very difficult to engineer small reactors. Uh, but the Navy's done it, and we have, of course, uh, a different kind of nuclear reactor on the Curiosity on Mars, which is uh, the only reason that that, that uh, rover can do what it does. Yeah, that does not get nearly enough publicity. No, it's fascinating. I mean, it's it's a passive reactor in the sense that it doesn't do active fission, but it uses uh, radioactive decay rather than radioactive fission to uh, to accomplish its purpose. But it's still a nuclear powered uh, battery. The nuclear battery and it'll run for the next fifteen or twenty years. Uh, it's a perfect world. I'd love to have a nuclear battery on my uh, my iPad. That'd be great. I mean, you just never have to plug the sucker in ever, as long as the thing. And that that you know, that's, that's not so crazy. And the from a physics perspective, it's a challenge. But it's not crazy. Yeah, what seems unfortunately a bit of a ways away is to reverse the anti-technology sentiment against radiation as such as as this voodoo, voodoo thing. That's a different. That's a different problem. I agree. We, we have um, a, a bizarre uh, worry about radioactivity, which is understandable. Bizarre in a sense, if you're, if you're a physicist, you would say it's, this is the easiest hazard we have and that exists to measure. There's nothing easier to measure than radioactivity. In fact, if you have a toxin you're worried about, the way you measure it and follow it is you make it radioactive. Make it mildly radioactive. That's how you trace it, whether it's in the body or in the environment. But we have... Uh, and I, I would say, from a, again, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm the wrong guy, but having studied this and been around this issue for a long time, I understand why there's a unique uh, fear of radioactivity because of the way, in a sense, it was introduced to the world, and principally through uh, nuclear weapons. And that really does create a whole different uh, psychological dynamic. And, I, and it's, it's understandable. Nuclear weapons are, are staggeringly fearsome things. And... Uh, uh, it does it does justifiably create a whole different psychology around nuclear energy. Yeah, I hope that it becomes more like the, the progression from the electric chair to the modern view of electricity, where it went from something people were afraid of to something that people understand has is incredibly beneficial just in the right context. I think that's I think that's likely. Uh, we may be, this may be the generation where that's true, um, but it would take it takes a generation or two. Post, uh, post. Uh, we'll, we'll look at it from Doctor Strangelove era and the movies of the 1950s. Post the Cold and in the Cold War, you have to get through one or two generations past that 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 view of uh, of what radioactivity can do. You have the, giant, the movies about giant women and giant ants and giant spiders and tree-headed worms and whatever. It's just, not that worms have heads, but <laughs> or, or worms with heads in the first place. This is that's the the, the zeitgeist around radiation and radioactivity, which which has to ultimately be uh, uh, in the history and not in people, top of people's minds.
The one form of nuclear power, potential nuclear power, that has gained some kind of excitement even among the more technologically suspicious is thorium-based nuclear power. What's your take on that and its its potential? Because it's it's very well hyped. Well, the, the idea of a thorium reactor was largely predicated on, initially on the the, the, the the proposition that we run out of uranium. So that was silly. We're not going to run out of uranium any more than running out of oil, even less so. Then the next proposition that was put forward is that it's inherently a safer reactor. They are they do have some uh, features which are nice, but. Uh, I think the the uh, hype is misplaced. The use use of thorium as opposed to uranium is a nuance. It means that you're using technology to achieve, in this case, a thorium reactor to achieve some to, to gain some additional features of safety and operations. You can also use technology to achieve similar gains in safety and operations with uranium. And uh, the fact is, uranium reactors have a whole lot of features which are very nice and convenient. Thorium reactors may work work just fine as well, and they don't really solve any of the fundamental problems about the psychology of radioactive uh, fission for an energy source. They don't really solve the waste issue. And they don't fundamentally change the proliferation issue because anytime you have a nuclear power plant, you can find a way to use it uh, if you really want to, to advance the technology, to push a national program towards uh, weapons. It's just that genie is out of the bottle and, and can't be put back in by any uh, nuance about it specific kind of uh, primary fissionable material you use. Yes, part of what I've heard about, about thorium is that it, it consumes all the material for energy and doesn't generate any residual. Is that not true? That's not true. It, it may generate less uh, byproducts and different byproducts. All nuclear reactors generate fission byproducts. All of them generate activation products. All of them create radioactive waste, including fusion reactors, by the way, when they ever get built. And so the, the issue of radioactivity, radiation shielding, and radioactive waste do not go away ever so long as you have uh, fission or fusion. The, the energy involved and the neutrons are high power, very active, and you end up with, uh, you end up with exactly the same issue. So um, forgive my non-physics uh, PhD here, but why is that? Why is it inherent that it will always generate a certain kind of byproduct? Well, fission, by definition, no matter what you fission, is the splitting of an atom to release neutrons that then fly off to try to split other atoms. Only some of those neutrons will split other atoms. Most of them escape the material and hit the material, hit other things in your uh, in the reactor, and they cause an activation product which is radioactive. And when you fission a material, whether it's thorium or uranium, the resultant of fission gives you two things: a lot of heat the energy that you use to convert to steam and electricity, and two fission byproducts. By definition, if I fission something, I create two fission byproducts. The byproducts are radioactive, again, by definition. So it doesn't matter what I split. The stuff you split is radioactive. It doesn't matter what I split. What I'm splitting it with are neutrons, and all the neutrons are not captured. When they escape the fuel, they hit the surrounding materials, and they activate it, make it also radioactive just in the physics. You can't avoid it. It's true of fusion. When you do fusion and you cross things together, it releases neutrons as well. It creates activation products. It creates no fission products, but it creates activation products, which are radioactive. You, in other words, you're activating the material. You're impacting it with high-energy neutrons, which make it radioactive. There seems to be an obsession in discussions of energy and, or an advocacy of a given kind of energy to act as if it has no byproducts. For example, if we look at wind and solar, there's this idea that they're, quote, clean and that nothing undesirable that we would have to deal with comes out of them. That's, could you discuss how that applies to those technologies? Well, I guess I, I, uh, I wrote a column called Magic Energy a while back, which generated a lot of unhappy responses. <laughs> and people have used words like everybody wants unobtainium uh, as, the, as the magic uh, fuel source. Everything involves a byproduct. It's inherent, again, revealed by bias as a physicist. You can't, the way you'd put, put it in more simplistic terms is there's no free lunch. There's always consequences of actions in, in the physical world, especially with energy. So if you think about uh, wind and solar, the principal 
environmental impacts involved. In fact, you have to extract and process enormous quantities of material, steel, aluminum, uh, plastics, fiber composites, carbon, carbon composites, uh, selenium, uh, lots of exotic materials and lots of conventional materials in huge quantities, lots of, lots of concrete for salt for wind farms. And all of that involves using energy. All of it involves digging stuff up. All of it involves using chemicals and materials from the earth and processing chemicals. And the, it's unavoidable. So the, all of those things have environmental impact. The environmental impact can be calculated on a unit of energy delivered. And you can compare things. So it's not very difficult. So the more diffuse or dispersed the thing you're trying to gather, which would be the wind and the sun, the more material that you have to process and, 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 and install, and therefore the bigger your impact. That's not counting impacts like covering land up or digging stuff up. I'm just talking about chemical impacts and emissions impacts. The, the, to put a significant amount of wind energy in the United States to have to move the meter, so to speak, on reducing the consumption, say, of coal, because people don't so much want to reduce the consumption of natural gas or reduce the consumption of uranium, you'd have to process a quantity of aluminum, steel, and concrete equal to or greater than the entire amount of material like that that we, we, we mined and processed to prosecute World War II. <laughs> really? A uh, lot of stuff. I've never heard of that statistic. A lot of stuff is doable. I mean, you could do it. It costs a lot of money. You have a huge environmental impact. But it's, it's, you'd have a much smaller environmental impact by digging up coal and burning the coal plant. It'd be a different impact. Now, you would have a CO2 impact from what I just described for the wind farms because unless everything's electrified or you're running nuclear power plants and run all your trucks and backhoes, you're going to be running diesel fuel. So the kind of plans that people propose entail sort of front-loading an enormous consumption of hydrocarbons, typically oil, in order to build all this stuff so that over the long term, next 50 years, you emit fewer hydrocarbons, carbon dioxide, by not burning coal. Uh, so if we're really worried about climate change, it's kind of a conundrum because if you accelerate the construction of stuff using hydrocarbon-based machinery, you load up the atmosphere with carbon dioxide. I, I mean, I'm obviously saying this not because I'm particularly worried about putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, only because those are facts. You can't avoid those facts. And if someone says, well, I want to use electric-powered backhoes, well, that's fine. Uh, there's not, they're, they're much more expensive. They could be built. You'd have to power them from, not wind farms, because they're not built yet. We're going to build those, but from nuclear plants and uh, hydro dams. The hydro dams we aren't building anymore. We're taking them apart because everybody's unhappy about the uh, damming up of rivers in North America. Are there, uh, do you know offhand any good resources for that in, in terms of just the, uh, the statistics on the energy it takes to produce a given unit of energy from you know, wind, solar, uh, et cetera. There's, a, there's an extraordinarily large body of literature in the technical community on this area of net energy analysis. So every, everything from a microprocessor to your paperback book, from a wind turbine's blade to an electric motor to a car, we, we know how much material and energy it takes to make these things. So it's a very, it's a very big uh, body of literature. It's, it's actually fascinating because, for example, with a car, most of the energy, about 80% of the energy that's associated with your owning a car is associated with your operating the car. Well, 20% of the total energy the car consumes is associated with making the car. With a computer, it's the inverse. About 80% of the energy associated with a computer is associated with making the computer, and about 20% with operating it. It's a very energy-intensive business. It takes somewhere in the order of a 1,000 times more energy per pound of material to make a silicon microprocessor than it does to make a piece of steel. And we, we make a lot of silicon. I mean, we make it by the square mile now in, in the world. No longer, we don't make it by the square inch. It's an extraordinarily energy-intensive process. Well-established well, well uh, data on this stuff. So those who are interested in this field can Google around net energy analysis and go into the technical literature, both in metallurgy and in IEEE, uh, American Study of Mechanical Engineers. This is... Uh, an enormously studied field. The trick with that field is figuring out your boundaries. Uh, where, where do you stop? Uh, for my part, you don't stop anywhere until you go back to the ground. I mean, so you want to count the energy debt 
associated with a, uh, an electron coming out of a solar array that goes to my house from the beginning of everything it takes to make that, from the ground, the concrete, the silicon, the steel, the cadmium, everything that's involved, all the way through to the very end and add it up. And you, you do the same with cars and coal. It's an interesting, it's a very interesting field. But the easiest way to measure uh, the net energy cost of something, by the way, is with money. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. The way you measure it, the ultimate metric that really tells you what you need to know is how much the thing costs in capital. It's a pretty good, not perfect, it's a pretty good echo of what its energy, de- energy uh, uh, costs are. So things that are, are uh, inexpensive to buy typically don't have a lot of energy associated with making them. Except where you have really you know exotic materials like gold or platinum, and then when you have a little bit of platinum or gold in it, so an iPhone, for example, it really costs about four or five hundred dollars to make. As you know, people buy them for two hundred, but that's discounted because you're paying for it in your bill. If you bought if you bought a book instead to read, your, well, let's use an iPad. You read an iPad to read your, your four or five or six hundred dollar Vix. An iPad is what a thousand to make, uh, be pre-discounted. In a, and you read it, use the read, and you buy a book that costs $10 to make. Well, the energy cost associated with a book is sort of the same range, about a tenth to a hundredth the energy cost to make an iPad. Paper is pretty, pretty energy in, unintensive to make compared to making silicon. Uh, I find this fascinating, and it really just makes me appreciate freedom and the price system as methods of, exactly. of decision-making because it, exactly. I mean, the scale, and particularly with regard to the scale issue, because central, I read all these papers or see all these papers with people concocting their future scenario of this many windmills and this many dams and whatever. And part of the beauty of the price system is that it's incorporating new information and that windmills might not cost the same when they're, you know, 0.5% of electricity than if they were 50% because you have all of these resource things. And, and the price not only takes into account the energy resource, it takes into account every resource, including exactly, humans. Exactly. exactly. So the, and, and, it, and from my perspective, studying this stuff for years, that's why I, I really come back to the, the key metric is money. It's the easiest one to follow. It's hard to follow the energy. It's hard to follow the resources. But the market's pretty good at pricing things if you let it price it. And now if you, you can distort the stuff by... By having uh, artificial, uh, like they do in China, you can and in, in India, where you can uh, subsidize oil prices and gasoline prices, uh, and we do it with some commodities here. But by and large, by and large in our market, uh, price close to reflects the embedded cost of things. So when somebody says to you that solar has reached grid parity, they're talking nonsense. They really are because they're not they're not talking about the real actual engineering cost of a, of a solar array to put electricity on the grid. And when you look at the actual cost, not the government subsidized cost, not, this, not the rebates, but what was the real cost, then you, you know the answer. Now, it doesn't mean government shouldn't subsidize things for other reasons. There are social reasons, there are political reasons, there are personal reasons. All that's fair enough. Uh, those are political decisions that uh, the governments can make and do make. But you still want to know the facts. And, and following the money is the key. It's, a, it's been true for, but it's also true for risks. I mean, things that, that are dangerous not just in terms of energy intensive, tend, tend you fall into money because uh, uh, systems that are designed to have inherent safety cost more often. Yeah. yeah, and follow the money I sometimes associate with political corruption and why people make decisions, but this is a much more uh, benevolent version of, of follow the money. <laughs> yeah. um. We're not going to go there, but it's just, I mean, it, the reality is that there's a um, um, uh, the, en- the whole energy field is deeply uh, fraught with politics and mythology. And it's understandable because it's so important. I mean, it really is important, and it's a big part of our uh, underlying part of our economy. That it makes sense that it is. It just makes it very hard for people to get facts, and they hear things that are just goofy. I mean, the idea that fracking, come back to that, what you asked earlier, is, is somehow particularly dangerous for contaminating groundwater, is just silly. Now the, the the Department of Environmental Environmental Department for the State of Michigan at their website has an extraordinarily clear, simple one-page explanation of fracking and its risks. It really is great. And in Michigan, I forget the exact number, 
the Department of Environmental Quality of Michigan pointed out there's something like 20,000 wells that have been drilled using fracking technology over the last 40, 50 years. Remember, fracking's old. The horizontal drilling and the high-tech stuff plus fracking is new. That's unleashed the gas and oil. And they pointed out that there's no more risk of contaminating groundwater with fracking or any other well than if there's a casement failure. This is the concrete steel uh, sheath that you put down the well when you drill down through the groundwater. It, it's, there is a risk there if it's not done right. It doesn't matter what kind of well you drill. It's got to be done correctly. And, of course, that's their job to make sure it's done correctly. But it doesn't have anything to do with fracking. Yeah, and and, and uh, we had a couple of weeks ago uh, Dr. Sharma from University of Texas, who's an expert on this and focuses on, and he was just making the point that often these alleged, uh, some of the stuff in Gasland, for example, likely originated from drilling water wells, and people think, oh, well, water wells can't be good, can't be bad because they can't do anything wrong because water is natural, but fracking that's unnatural. <laughs> well, exactly. Crackling is, uh, I mean, it is unnatural, I guess, in the sense that we're pumping stuff down and pressurizing uh, uh, a, a hole we drilled, but that's, uh, it, it, I'm not trying to make light of the fact that people should be worried about bad actors in any industry that don't behave safely and contain things that can be hazardous. This is, uh, this is sort of a given. Every, everyone I've ever talked to in any business, energy or otherwise, don't, don't object to safety regulations that are and environmental regulation. They just object to capricious, capricious implementation of them that, that, they, that makes it impossible for them to comply. Uh, they, they are, they're people with families. They, they care about their business. They want to do it cleanly. They just want a, a sensible, clear, consistent path to get it done right. Yeah, I was, I was actually having dinner with some people from the coal industry the other night, and just it's. It's so funny how, they're not funny, but how people just dehumanize things that they're not involved with. But if you talk to anyone in the energy industry, why would they really be wanting to do this if they were hurting people? So they'll just say, yeah, of course, we're thinking about safety all the time. I mean, for their own well-being, but also because why would you want to do a job where you were hurting people? Exactly. And, and there are people like that. It's true in every industry that aren't good players, whether they're the Madoffs or the financial world. Or, or bad players in the uh, energy field, or they're bad players in the wind and solar field. They, that made a difference. So you can find bad guys in places. We want to root them out and stop them. But the majority of the industries of all of them are they're, they're run by honorable, uh, you know, caring, if you like, uh, men and women that really want to get the job done. They want to make a profit. They want to keep people employed. They want to get stuff done. I mean, it's just uh, the vilifying is uh, is tiresome, and the mythology is, is tiresome. We don't accomplish anything. But I, I, you know, it's, it's how we do politics. But what you hope is, in a discussion, at least at a cocktail party, you can you can get over somebody saying, "Well, you're just a conservative. That's why you like oil or coal or gas." Well, no, it's because I like cheap energy that'll help the poor people and me. Yeah, being a human being is a key ingredient of liking energy. I find. Um, well, that that brings us to the issue of certain kinds of bad actors that can exist in government, which are not worried about enough. So I want to talk about the going forward, the risks of some of this stuff not happening because of government policies. What do you see as, as the future of, of if we agree that the technology is there for something incredible to happen and some incredible stuff is happening right now, what's the, what are, what's the political likelihood of things happening or not happening? Well, you know, I, I don't know what the, uh, the likelihood is. But here's what I suspect. I would say that the likelihood was vanishingly small that we could implement a sensible energy policy that was based on reality and technology, which does not exclude alternatives, but, the, uh, but similarly does not impede or exclude hydrocarbons. So we would have a truly agnostic policy that would accelerate R&D in the real sense, not picking industrial winners and losers, and removing regulatory impediments. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a naive optimist in that sense, I think it's possible. I would say that it's more possible today than at any time in modern history for a very simple reason. We, we're at an interesting junction juncture in, uh, in American history. People think you can't change policies. Well, well, think about it. EPA didn't exist. It got created. The Department of Energy didn't exist. It got created. Department of Homeland Security didn't, get ex didn't exist. It got created. Policies follow 
major shifts in the reality of the world situation. We have just entered a major shift in the world situation. We are no longer, America, the swing consumer of energy. We could be the swing producer, or not the swing consumer anymore. All the growth in energy demand is outside the United States. We also know another reality that majority of the growth of demand is going to come from hydrocarbons, from every forecast. And we also know that we can produce incredible quantities of hydrocarbons. This is an inc a profound and fundamental shift in the world situation that didn't exist 30, 40, 50 years ago. In that kind of environment, when you add the fact that if we were to pursue an aggressive export policy, production of hydrocarbons, it would generate trillions of dollars in economic benefit to our economy in millions of jobs in this great recession. You put all that together in the pot, and I would say this is the time when it is possible where we could see a fundamental structural shift in how we approach our energy policy in North America to the benefit of the world and to us. It doesn't get better than that. And I, it wasn't the case 10 years ago that that could have been put in play. It is the case now because of those combination of circumstances, which have all come together right now. I want to run this by you. It seems to me like there's a pretty huge political opportunity for one of the candidates, and I, you can probably guess which one I'm imagining, to take advantage of this potential and really have an inspirational theme of what we can do with all of this energy and the, the potential for energy growth, energy export in America. Do you think that could be something that f factors largely into the election? Yeah, I think it's already uh, becoming part of the election process. I mean, it's uh, what we have is, I think we have a genuine, um, you know, when people keep talking about stark choices, we have a pretty clear choice. I mean, the president has made it clear that he likes his plan and doesn't like what Romney's proposing. Um, and he has not viewed the failures in what they've done in the, uh, in the stimulus to try to promote wind and solar is a failure. They want to do more of that. And that's their opinion, and they're making it very clear. It's not, they're not backing off. They opposed aggressively the Keystone Pipeline. So you have that view of the world, which is, according to the, the, the CBO and, I believe, the Congressional Research Service, the number of jobs that have been generated by the tens of billions of dollars of government stimulus and alternative energy are counted in the few hundreds of thousands. On the other side of the equation, we have what Romney's proposing, which is to accelerate hydrocarbon production, which will generate millions of jobs. It's easy to know why it will generate millions of jobs. 85% of our energy comes from that stuff. Why wouldn't it be where most of the jobs are? It's kind of like the Willie Sutton line. The money, you, why, did he, why did he rob a bank? It's where the money was. <laughs> you want to produce more hydrocarbons, it's where the jobs are. So I think I think we have it's already we've already seen this has been engaged as part of the current political discourse. Uh, I suspect if if Obama wins, I have no idea who will win. I suspect if he wins, he will uh, drift more into the hydrocarbon camp than he has in the past, just for practical reasons. Overwhelming opportunity to do more and to create jobs, and I I think that uh, he'll end up doing that. Whether whether he says it or not in his current debate. I think he'll end up doing it, but I don't think he'll do as much as as um, as Romney would. In 2007, he vowed to end the tyranny of oil. So it's already been quite a bit of a shift from bragging, I think, in the last State of the Union address about how much increase in oil production has occurred under his watch. You know, it's uh, you have to you have to blame another Republican for how we're thinking about oil these days. So. I mean, Bush talked about our addiction to oil, Bush 43, which I was sort of paid to hear. And uh, Obama talked about the tyranny of oil. Uh, there's nothing wrong with oil. Maybe something wrong with where we buy some of it. There's <laughs> nothing wrong with oil. Oil is magical fuel. It's great. It's unbelievably nice. It's, 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 you can't, here's, here's a thought experiment that anybody can do that's not a physicist. Imagine a, a vehicle and imagine, just imagine any vehicle that you could get into that could carry 1,000 pounds of stuff and at 80, 60, 70, 80 miles an hour, whatever speed you like to drive, and go 500 miles uh, on a suitcase worth of liquid stuff. I just amazing. It's just it's utterly stunning. There's been nothing like that in history, and there's nothing like that on the horizon. It's just absolutely amazing. And that's what oil allows. It's a, it's a phenomenal uh, fuel that has the capability that one would hope to emulate 
in synthetic fuels or biofuels that's not been achieved yet. And it's the holy grail, but it exists only in the ground as a crude. Well, and what you said before is very exciting just about improvements in coal and gas to liquids, because to be able to get diesel or gasoline from that just, I mean, dramatically expands your resource base. Sorry, what you were saying, I, I lost you there for a second. Oh, okay. No, I was just saying, referring to what you said before about how gas to liquids or coal to liquids uh, would okay. dramatically increase our, our resource base for that incredible energy-dense liquid fuel. Exactly. I mean... Ultimately, what you really want to have, you want to have the features that oil has for flying airplanes and driving cars and trucks and moving ships. That's the feature you really want. And the easiest way to get that feature is to get more oil, and the next easiest feature is to make synthetic oil. After that, everything else is second place. Great stuff. Um, all right. Well, I think we're ready to wrap up the show. Any, any parting thoughts? And also uh, tell our listeners where they can learn more about your work. Well, I, uh, my work they can find at tech-pundit.com. That's where my one of my columns are. I'm writing some speeches. But the the parting thought is, is this, though. It's not that I don't believe there's things beyond oil or coal or gas or uranium. In fact, I know there is. I mean, the, it's an old adage in uh, physics that when a physicist tells you something is impossible, you know they're wrong. Uh, I'm, I believe an awful lot is possible. We haven't begun to discover. I'm a huge fan and bull of putting more money into basic R&D. I would put it this way, I want a lot more money going to scientists and not to cylindras. That would be my sort of slogan. Because we will discover new things. But from the discovery of a new thing, a new physics and new new ways of implementing physics to a practical technology takes decades. We don't have decades right now to do the right thing for our economy and for jobs. That's why I'm extraordinarily bullish about doing sensible things with hydrocarbons. But at the same time I'm extremely enthusiastic about anybody Obama included Obama and Romney that will increase funding to universities and basic research. The, the problems of the world are created by people and they're solved by people with new technologies and that comes from basic research. All right, audience, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, just one note, make sure to go to facebook.com slash I love fossil fuels. That's facebook.com slash I love fossil fuels. That is our new campaign. It's been exploding lately, and uh, share it with your friends. We're trying to grow it enough so we can make a very visible uh, political statement, as, as Mark expressed his opinion. My own opinion is I'm super excited about the potential of nuclear. I'm super excited about other things I can't imagine, but right now, fossil fuels, hydrocarbons are the energy of life, and we want to live better and better over the next couple of decades, so go to that site. That said, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great topic, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.